You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. So in 1976, uh, one of the greatest movies in American cinema history was released. Its title was one word and only one word. Does anybody happen to want to take a guess at what the name of that movie was? No. Hey, whoa, I heard it over here. Rocky, there we go. Rocky, that's exactly right. The movie was Rocky. And I don't, I don't want to start things out this morning offensively for you, but if you don't like Rocky, that's a you issue, not a Rocky issue, okay? Rocky is absolutely amazing. It is one of the few movies that absolutely stands the test of time. And for me in particular, there is one scene that always just, it just always stands out to me every single time that I watch it. And it's a pretty famous scene. You might be familiar with it if you've watched it recently. Uh, But it takes place right before Rocky's great showdown with Apollo Creed. It's the night before the showdown and Rocky can't sleep. Uh, He's thinking through the fight and he goes home to Adrian uh, and he confesses to her. He says, I... I can't beat him. And Adrian, uh, like a very supportive partner would do, is like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And Rocky lays his head on his pillow. And this is the part that always gets me every single time. He lays his head on the pillow and he tearfully confesses to her that beating Creed isn't actually his goal. He says, it don't matter. I was nobody before. It's true. I was thinking, it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance, seeing that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I ain't just another bum from the neighborhood. That I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. It's a really powerful moment in the movie, and it pulls back the layers on all of Rock's motivation, what's really going underneath the surface of this fighter, this deep longing that he has somewhere within him for validation, for worth, to prove himself. And that scene sticks out to me today because the ancestor from the Torah that we are going to study is one that faced a very, very similar fight. And I think we're going to see some of the same patterns uh, even emerge in him. And so if you would, what I'd love for us to do is I'd love for us to turn to Genesis chapter 32. That's going to be our text for this morning, Genesis chapter 32. And we're going to look at a pivotal scene from the life of the other brother that we saw last week, the slightly younger twin of Esau, a guy you may know by the name of Jacob. We're going to pick up in 32, jump right down into it. We'll pick up in verse 22, and we'll go through 31. This is what it reads. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which was a local river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with this passage. If you grew up in church, it might ring some bells. But regardless, it's admittedly a pretty strange scene. Here's Jacob all alone on the bank of a river when some mystery guy, who we later find out is God, engages him in some sort of ancient Near Eastern cage match that results in Jacob leaving with a Bo Jackson injury and a new name, okay? Like, it's, it's a bit weird, all right? It's a bit weird. Well, let me give you a Bible reading tip. When things seem strange in the Bible, instead of, uh, rather than letting that frustrate you or cause you to put it down and think, well, I'm sure God means that passage for somebody, but I guess it's just not me. Instead of doing that, let strange moments like this in scripture provoke you to dig in further and discover what's really going on. Because here's what's actually happening in this seemingly strange passage. This moment from Genesis 32 is actually the climactic moment of Jacob's life. It's the climactic moment of Jacob's story. Jacob's life covers roughly 12 chapters in the book of Genesis. And and this moment is the turning point on which his whole life swings. It's an encounter he has with God that changes his life in the way that he needed the most. But in order to see that, what we've really got to do is we really, we really need to be able to see and understand the whole scope of Jacob's life. And there's, there's really no other way to do it. To understand the significance of this passage, we've got to know the full story of who this guy is. And so here's what I want to do this morning, if you'll let me. I want to, um, I want to James Cameron's The Titanic, this sermon a little bit, okay? Uh, and by that, I mean, I want to flash back. I want to look into the past so you can know what the heck is going on in the present. Okay, you guys, you guys with me there? So we're going to bounce around just a little bit, all right? But I promise we will make our way back to Genesis 32. The first place I want us to flash back to is I want want us to flash back to the passage we were in last week and look at Jacob's family. Scene one is Jacob's family of origin, and we see it in Genesis chapter 25. We'll pick up in verse 24. It reads, when her days to give birth were completed, this is about his mother, uh, Rebecca, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, we mentioned this last week, but this passage is telling us some very important things about the dynamics of this family. First of all, you'll notice the names they're given when they're born. Like, we don't tend to think about this too much in America, but other cultures not our own, especially ancient cultures, when names were given, they were meaningful things. Names were were meaningful. About about as close as we get to this is what's going to happen in a few years in elementary schools when there's a whole swath of children named Taylor because all the Swifties have reproduced. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that. That's about as close as we're going to get to what is actually going on in here. But in ancient writings like the Bible, a name was way more than just a label. It was way more than just a label you used to make dinner reservations or file your taxes. It was way more than something that was just given to you because your mom thought it sounded cute or something like that. Your name was a part of who you were. Your name was a part of your identity, a part of you. 
a truth hidden in your bones, so to speak, a word that told the rest of the world something true about you. In Esau's case, it was that he was hairy. In Jacob's, though, it was that he was a heel grabber, which was also an ancient way of saying that he was a supplanter, someone who finds a way to take from those who are ahead of him, a cheater to be more on the nose. He comes out of the womb holding Esau's heel as if to say, yeah, 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 you might have, you might have technically come out first, but I got your foot. So samesies, all right? Samesies, we got it. We're, we came out at the same time. Uh, and this winds up playing an absolutely crucial role in the dynamic between him and his brother and his parents. As we see, these two boys could not be more different than each other. Esau was big, loud, and outdoorsy, the stereotypical man's man of sorts. Jacob, on the other hand, was quiet, liked to cook, and preferred to be inside with his mama. He was the Timothy Chalamet to Esau's Travis Kelsey, if you will, all right? And in light of these differences, in light of these differences, there is this openly acknowledged favoritism the parents play between the two. Isaac openly preferred Esau to Jacob in a way that was, for whatever, for however it looked, it was in a way such that it was noticeable and known. The people around them knew that Esau was Isaac's favorite and Jacob was not. And so here you have Jacob growing up underneath the reality that, that his dad didn't really like him all that much. That his dad didn't really prefer him, didn't want to spend time with him, wasn't interested in the things that he was interested in, thought a bit less of him with this persistent sense, so to speak, of inferiority towards his, old, his older brother. And, so, and some of you know exactly what, what that is like. You know exactly how that is. You had a brother or sister who, for whatever reason, your parents just believed that they walked on water. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, yeah, that was me. It was so great. You know, whatever. But the rest of us are like, yeah, yeah, we had one. We had one like that. And by comparison, every, everything that you did just seemed, just seemed a little subpar. And to be clear, you knew the truth. Like, you knew the truth that they were just a, a butt-kissing goody-two-shoes. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you knew what was really going on. But good luck convincing mom and dad of that, right? That's a bit of what's going on with Jacob here. And listen, it's no big secret that there are few things more wounding to a man specifically than not receiving the love and affirmation they were made for from their father. And so Jacob grows up with something that we would call a dad wound, a dad wound. And it only gets worse in the next scene of his life. If you would, let's flip the page over one page to Genesis chapter 27. And scene two, what we're going to see is Jacob's search his relentless search for a blessing. We'll pick up in verse one. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before you die. Now, real quickly, let's, this talk of blessing was something big in the Bible. We mentioned a little bit of it last week and it, it might sound foreign to us, but the idea of a blessing was not foreign to them. Biblically, to bless meant to speak words invoking divine favor, specifically with the intent that the object that is being blessed will have favorable circumstances at a future time. It was a way that fathers passed on to their children an empowered future, so to speak. Words of validation 
words of love and affirmation and promise. And of course, fathers would and could give out all kinds of blessings to their children, but the primary and weightiest of those was generally reserved for the firstborn as a part of their birthright, like we talked about last week. And Isaac, as we see here, intends to give these words to Esau, not to Jacob. Despite the fact that God said that the older would serve the younger, despite the fact that Esau had sold his birthright and all that came with it to Jacob for a bowl of stew, Isaac was determined to give those primary validating words to his favorite son. And to summarize what happens a bit, Rebecca overhears this conversation and she hatches a plan to make sure that this doesn't happen, that her favorite, Jacob, would receive these words of blessing instead. So she tells Jacob to let her prepare the type of food that Isaac likes and then to dress up like Esau so that old and blind Isaac will think that Jacob is him and he'll be the one to get the blessing instead. And so Jacob does it. He gets all dressed up like his brother Esau and brings in the food that his mother had made. And Isaac is skeptical at first because his voice obviously sounds like the voice of Jacob. So he tells him to come closer to see if he passes a literal smell test. And this is what he says in verse 27. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is, the, is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. He smells like Esau. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may, many, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Massively powerful words. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know it sounds very, very much like the words that God promised to Abraham. It's God's promises being passed down here but the promises God made historically to their family line. But again, you would do well to just stop here for a moment and think about what this must be like for Jacob, what he might be thinking or feeling, the position that he finds himself in in these moments. Like we already know he's had to live his whole life knowing in no uncertain terms that his dad would rather him be Esau. We know that whether they meant it poorly or not, every time somebody mentions his name, it brings up this idea of cheating. And he knows he's done it at least once already in his life. And now imagine, here he is, dressed up like a clown to get the blessing that daddy doesn't want to give him in the first place. You might think he'd be happy, right? I mean, at least he's getting what he wanted. But he knows the truth as well as you and I do. He knows the entire time that his dad does not mean for these words to go to him. Like, um, do you remember the first time you ever cheated? Like the first time you ever cheated like on a, on a test or an exam or, or a, a game or something like that? And I know there are some of us who are in here who are like, oh, I would never. Okay, all right. For the rest of us cool kids in the room, do you remember what it felt like? All right. Do you remember like what, what, what that felt like when that first happened? It's a, it's a weird feeling, right? Like it's a very weird feeling. Like you won, so that's nice. But you also know it comes with a caveat. That there's this asterisk beside the victory. It's how I imagine Michigan feels after their na- recent national championship. You're welcome. You're welcome. There's an asterisk. There's an asterisk. You, you won. You won. But you know the truth. 
and it doesn't entirely feel like you won. That's Jacob. He's got the blessing. He's got the words, but there's an asterisk. He won, but it doesn't really feel like he won. And so the result is for nearly the next two decades of his life, he just lives in the fallout of this. And we're not going to go into it all today. We'll hit some of it next week. But the cliff notes are that Jacob essentially goes out and continuously tries to find that next thing, whatever it may be, that might bring this sense of blessing into his life. That thing that will validate him. That thing that will fill up whatever it is that he senses is lacking in him, that will give him love and approval and affirmation. So for example, when he learns that Esau wants to kill him, he leaves town at the request of his mom to go find a wife and start a new life. And literally, the first girl he sees, he absolutely loses his mind over. I mean, he just goes crazy for this girl. He quite literally starts picking heavy things up and putting them down to show off his indoor kid muscles, okay? Like this is, this is what he's doing. And he concludes that he just can't live without her. He thinks, I just can't live without this Rachel. He's like, maybe she'll do the trick. Maybe she'll be the thing that fills up what is lacking in me. And due to some trickery by her father, he winds up giving himself to functional slavery for 14 years to marry her. Unless you're tempted to think, oh, that's so beautiful. I want somebody to love me like that. Look, that is not how the original audience would have heard these words, okay? They would have interpreted these events like this dude is a walking and talking red flag. He's got some serious issues. He is not husband material, if you understand what I'm saying. And it doesn't in there. There winds up being a lot of drama in their relationship. And so what happens is he keeps looking. He realizes, well, this ain't going to do the trick. So he keeps trying to find it elsewhere. And so from here, he'll once again live out his name, this time to acquire wealth and power by deceiving his equally deceptive father-in-law. Like maybe if he becomes independently wealthy, maybe if he becomes a person of power and prosperity, that that will be the thing. Maybe that will be the thing that will finally do it for me. That will make everything okay. But the point is this, this pursuit of validation, this pursuit of blessing is really the theme of Jacob's life. Trying to get his hands on that one thing that he thinks will ultimately make him okay. I love how the late Tim Keller sums him up. He says, Jacob, that very ancient figure in the book of Genesis, and yet an incredibly modern figure. Jacob is a man with an inner vacuum, an inner emptiness. Jacob is a man desperate for other people's affirmation, other people's blessing, for success, for approval. And it's on this note that I would add that Jacob's story is very much like many of our own. Jacob's story is very much like many of our own. Down in the depths of him, Jacob wants to know that he's okay. He wants to know that he's loved, that he has value. Jacob wants to know that his life is worth something, that his life matters. He wants to know that he's wanted and belongs. Essentially, Jacob wants to know that he's not just another bum from the neighborhood. And you might not use those words precisely, but the truth is, is you and I look for the exact same thing. You and I do this too. And it comes out in all sorts of ways. So we think, if I can just be successful enough, 
If I can just reach that next goal, that next rung on the ladder, whatever it may be, if I can just get there, then I'll know. If I can just get that job, if I can just get that lifestyle, if I can just get that money, then, then I'll know. I'm not a bum. A guy I follow once said that virtually every incredibly, incredibly successful person he has ever met has some sort of deep wound that they are trying to overcome, that they never heard those words of love and validation from mom or dad, so they've chased it, and big bank accounts and flashy cars and rising to the top of the proverbial food chain. If I can just get there, then I'll know. Then I'll be okay. If I can just be this type of mom, if I could just be this type of mom, if my family would just be like this and look like this, if, if, if my kids would just wind up this particular way, then I'll know. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. If I can just get married, if I can just find that person, if I can just get in with that group, if I can just change this thing about myself, if I can just stop doing this and start doing that, then I'll know. If I can just stop being the type of person who does fill in the blank, if I can just get that thing or reach that goal, then I'll know. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. And maybe for some of us, like Jacob, we've even on some level lied and cheated and stolen to get it because we want it. We can't live without it. Like Jacob before us, we want to find that thing that if we could just get our hands on it, it, it would make our life okay. Have you ever thought about your insecurities that way? That this is what they really are? That what your insecurity is, however it looks, what it really is is a search for blessing looking for someone or something to speak words about you or think certain things about you or impart some sort of absolution and meaning and value to your existence. And I don't know what this longing for blessing may look like for you specifically. I don't know where exactly you look to find it. It's probably different for all of us. But the point is, is that there is this thing in us that searches for it. We want it. We're looking for it. And Jacob was too. And that is what brings us all the way back to Genesis 32 on the banks of the Jabbok. And what I would call the scene of Jacob's fight. Brings us to Jacob's fight. At this point, the goalposts have moved yet again, as they tend to do with all insecurity. And after a prompting from God, he concludes that what he needs to do, what he really needs, is to go back home and get what God said would be his. The only problem is that Esau is still alive. And the last time Jacob heard from him, he was promising to hunt Jacob down and kill him for ruining his life and taking his future. And at this moment, Esau is on his way to meet Jacob with 400 men, which even in the ancient world doesn't exactly sound like a fun welcome home party. And Jacob has tried to win his brother over by, by sending gifts, I mean, gift after gift after gift to Esau, but he has gotten no response. So knowing that Esau is on the horizon, he sends the remainder of his stuff and his wives and kids uh, across the river. And as verse 24 says, Jacob was left all alone. And we don't know why Jacob sent the rest of his family and stuff across the river. Maybe, maybe it was for their protection. Maybe it was to give himself some time and space to think through a, a new scheme for when Esau arrives. But what is plain is that in this moment, Jacob is isolated and vulnerable in a way that he hasn't been for a very long time. 
everything else, the family, the wealth, the disguises, the deception, all of that is gone. And he is left only with himself. He's alone in a dark and desolate place until he isn't. It says, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Seemingly out of nowhere, Jacob is jumped by this mysterious person, by this mystery person. I don't know who Jacob may have thought it was. I imagine he probably thought it was Esau come to kill him. Kill him. But regardless, what we do know is that for Jacob, this is a fight for his life. Listen, a fight that lasts all night isn't just some little dust up, okay? Like, I don't know how many of you have experience fighting or anything like that. But if you're fighting all night, this is not just a small little skirmish, right? We're told how long the fight lasts so that we know the desperation of it. Jacob is fighting for his very existence. And for all practical intents and purposes, it's a stalemate until verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And this seems like an odd interchange But what you have to see is that in this moment, everything changes. Everything changes. This is the moment that Jacob realizes what's actually going on and who his assailant actually is. You see, it becomes clear that this character that Jacob has been going at it with for hours upon hours has been holding back the entire time. I mean, do you see how Jacob was injured, right? His opponent didn't grab his hip and twist. He didn't give him a good old-fashioned jackknife powerbomb into the dirt or anything like that. Like, no, 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 no. He simply reached out and touched him. What becomes apparent is that this person, whoever he is, had a wealth of power that he had not been tapping into the whole time. Like a dad letting his kids wrestle with him on the floor, he was letting Jacob stay in the fight all night. And when he touches his hip, it becomes abundantly clear. It becomes clear that Jacob is not wrestling with any mere mortal. Jacob is wrestling with God. Keller again says, the minute Jacob is touched like that, the minute Jacob sees that supernatural strength, he suddenly realizes who this is. At that moment, he realizes what the real meaning of his life is. He realizes what the real problem is. He suddenly realizes he had been all wrong. The problem of his life is not what he thought, and the real meaning of his life was not what he thought either. He's saying that, what he's saying is at that moment, Jacob realizes that what he had really been searching to get his hands on his entire life was literally in his hands at that very moment which is why he refuses to let him go, which is why he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Jacob realizes that what he'd really been searching for was right there. He realizes the one, the thing he had been fighting with all, all night was the only one who could actually deliver to him what he had longed for his entire life. Do you see now why this is such a watershed moment for Jacob? It turns out Jacob had been wrestling all his life. All of his insecurity, his inadequacy, his inner emptiness, all his sinful cheating and scheming attempts to fill up what was lacking, it was all wrestling. Jacob just thought he was wrestling with his parents' favoritism or his brother or his father-in-law. Yet here's this stranger who shows up and just exhausts him, just wears him slap out, who touches his hip, 
showing that he could have done so at any time. And Jacob, at the end of his rope, is like, oh, it's you. You're what I've been looking for. You're what I've been after. It's you. I need you. I need the blessing that only you can give. I have to have you bless me. It's the only thing that's going to work. It's the only thing that could fill this void up inside of me. It's you and only you. It's an incredible moment of absolute clarity. God is showing him that the blessing he was fighting for, it was never going to be found in those places he chased it. It was never going to be found in your dad. It was never going to be found in your marriage or in your success. Those things would never be enough. It was only ever going to be found in God himself. And that's the thing that Jacob's story is asking us to realize as well. That what you are actually looking for to make you okay, what you are actually looking for to bring you love, affirmation, validation, purpose, and meaning in your life is not going to be found anywhere else either. The blessing won't be found in some bank account or some relationship. There is not enough money or sex or accomplishment in the world that will be enough to make you feel like you're enough. No job or lifestyle or person is ever going to have the ability to fix that thing in you that feels empty. It's not going to be found in you trying to reinvent yourself or clean yourself up or pretend to be something you're not. It can't do it. And some of you know this. Some of you know this because you got the thing. You got it. And it didn't work. You got it and it didn't work. And so like Jacob, you started thinking that, man, well, maybe I just need this other thing. Maybe it wasn't really that thing that I thought, but it's this other thing now. So if I can go out and get that, and then you got that, and it didn't work either. So now it's another, and another, and another. And you're a bit like Jacob with Isaac. You actually did get the words, but you found that the words weren't enough. You needed something more. And hopefully you can see that, and you can see why this is good news, because I know that there are so many of us here this morning who are wrestling. You are wrestling, trying to fill those insecurities and those deep voids that you feel in your soul. Wrestling with past failures and rejections and sins that you feel like you can't escape. Wrestling to feel smart enough. Wrestling to feel successful enough, wealthy enough, mom enough, moral enough. Wrestling to get someone's attention or love. Don't you see? God wrestles Jacob to put an end to his wrestling. And the good news is he has come to do the exact same thing for you. For you. And God does bless him. He answers his request. He does bless him, and he does it in a way he would have never expected. And I think it's worth noting, and I would hate for us to miss this, that the way that God opens Jacob's eyes was through pain. God had to wound him to help him see. And this is a hard thing, but sometimes the absolute best thing for you is to lose everything that you have built your security and worth on that isn't Jesus. Sometimes the best thing for us is to feel the pain of all that we have looked to, to bolster our sense of worth and validation, come crashing down so that we realize the only real place we're going to find it is in the arms of Jesus. Maybe some of you find yourself in that place this morning where everything you've tried to build your life on to make you okay just ain't working. It ain't working. 
and you, like Jacob, find yourself left all alone at the end of your rope, not knowing where to turn. Jesus is what can do it. Jesus says, come and cling to me. This is what Jacob begins to understand. He's in pain, but Jacob knows it doesn't matter if it hurts. It doesn't matter if he loses. It doesn't matter if this guy cracks his head open or not. There is something here that is more important than his pain. Something that makes all of this pain of losing everything absolutely worth it. And he won't let go until he has it. And look at verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, that name, that name, that name that has haunted him, that name, that destiny that he has lived into so many times, heel grabber, supplanter, cheater, that identity that he certainly didn't know this one who is in front of him now to be thinking about him. Before Jacob could get the blessing, he had to tell him his old name, cheater. His lips had to confess, this is who I am. This is who I've been and this is what I've done and I need you to do something better for me. I need for you to do what I can't do. I need for you to do what nothing else in this world can do. When he speaks that name, his soul is laid bare. All his vain attempts to find blessing in the arms of other things are known and exposed. And look what God does. Then God says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And for a second, can you imagine that moment? All the weight of his past, all the past pain associated with that name, all the past sin associated with that name, all the past struggle and anger and jealousy and inferiority, everything associated with that old name changed in a moment. In a moment, Jacob gets made something completely new. And then Jacob asks for his name as sort of this little way to confirm, did what just happened really happen? And God's response is to essentially say, do you even really need to ask? No. No, he didn't. Of course not. And then Israel walks away. Israel truly blessed and forever changed. And so what I hope you see here is that Jacob's story is one of great redemption. After all those years, Jacob turns over who he is and God makes him something new. And so listen, we would do really well to not overcomplicate the implications of this story for us. In the same way that Jacob's story is our story, Israel's story can be your story too. Israel's story can be your story too. This is the good news of the gospel. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. That Jesus did what you could not do for yourself to give you what you could not give to yourself, a completely new identity. Washed, clean, set free, new. He bled, died, and rose again to give you the blessing and a new name. To fill up what you sense is lacking in your soul and to make right every single thing that your sin has made wrong to make you new. Friends, in Christ, God offers us, offers you the blessing you're looking for. The same heritage, the inheritance, the future, the same words of love and affirmation. The Father spoke over the Son, Jesus, that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In Christ, He speaks those words over you, over you. Listen, some of you have been fighting for so long to get the father wound off you, to get the failure off you, to get the sin off you. And God says, if you want it off you, you just need to lay aside whatever else you've been running to, to solve it and cling to me. Cling to me. For some of you like Jacob, you have spent most of your life feeling like you could never measure up that you can never be smart enough or funny enough or successful enough. Listen, nothing will, nothing will heal. Nothing will cure every bit of restlessness and insecurity in you until you hear God say through Christ, I love you and you are mine. And I love you not because of anything you've done. I love you because I love you not because of what you bring to the table, not because you've proven yourself worthy of it, not because you are enough, but because I am enough, because I have done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Cling to me. You will never solve your insecurity until you hear those words loud and clear, not just for other people, but for you, for you, that this is how the God of the universe feels about you in Christ. Similarly, others of us, I know you feel like a fraud. You live each and every day feeling like a phony. You feel like your life is just one big asterisk. Like you've just been dressing up, hoping that nobody sees through your disguise. Listen, God, God says, I see you. I know who you are. I know who you really are. Good parts, bad parts, and everything in between. And if you cling to me with who you really are, I will make you something completely new. I will fix what is broken. For still others of us, if not all of us, we know that we are sinful and broken. That we, that we aren't who we should be. And we haven't done the things that we should do. In fact, we've done things that we are ashamed to admit and think that those things can't help but define us, a bit like Jacob's name defined him. God says, cling to me and I will change your name. You will no longer be called sinful, broken, addicted. You will no longer be named, used, abused, insecure, not enough, you will no longer be known as bum, but I will make you righteous, redeemed, beloved, 
daughter, son. On some level, we are all in a fight for our life. My only question for you this morning, and the question we're all going to have to wrestle with, is who is going to be the one to win? Let's pray.